I want to talk today about preaching in the Middle Ages, or not, not the Middle Ages, in the Reformation tradition, sorry. And we need to talk about two figures. I'm going to fixate on two figures today. If we get through both of them, I'm not sure. One of those figures is Martin Luther, and the other is John Calvin. Uh, I think that if you want to understand preaching in the Reformation, you should go to the two biggest figures. And I think there's no question to my, in my mind that Luther and Calvin are the two biggest figures in the Reformation of preaching. So think about what we're coming into when the Reformation happens, right? Remember the Middle Ages. Um, preaching was not lost during the Middle Ages. Preaching was happening during the Middle Ages. Um, but remember, um, preaching was also not in a great state. I have a, somebody I'm going to quote here to give you an idea of the overall state of preaching in the Middle Ages. This fellow's name is Bruno Berkey. He is a scholar of the Swiss Reformed Church, and here's what he says. He says, preaching at the end of the 15th century was generally in a decadent state. It had lost touch with the biblical text and was drowning in hagiographical tales and moral recommendations and took delight in artificial scholastic distinctions. Um, If I could boil that down to you, this is how I would describe that. In other words, he's saying, Preaching in the Middle Ages tended to be scholastic, egg-headed, and moralistic, even if people could understand it, Um, which is is a hard thing to sit under week after week, even if you could understand it. The Reformation brought what Hughes Oliphant Old calls a refocusing of preaching. That's the phrase he uses. He says it's a refocusing of preaching. In particular, it was reclaimed by the reformers as something essential to the life and worship at the ch- of the church. So we will talk about this especially, uh, I don't know if we'll get to the end of this today, because we got a few extra minutes and uh, I gave you guys a few extra minutes, so I don't know if we'll get to the end. But when we get to the end of Calvin, we are going to talk specifically about why he saw preaching as part of the worship, which is... Not unique to Calvin, but it is a unique emphasis of Calvin. It's something that Calvin makes a very big deal about, and he leans hard on it. Um, For the Reformers, preaching became the heartbeat out of which the life of the church flowed. You do not have a healthy body if you don't have a healthy heart and a heartbeat that is spreading the blood through the body. And they saw preaching the same way. They thought if you could heal the preaching ministry of the church, then you could heal the rest of the, of the, the things that ail the church. Because in the, in the preaching of the word, you have sort of this, this autoimmune response that takes place to the rest of the errors that are taking place in the errors and practices and the beliefs of people. If people could consistently start hearing the word of God preached week in and week out, then you were going to see health return to the limbs. You were going to see healing take place. And so for them, you have to reform preaching or else you don't have a reformation of the church. Um, Now, here's one thing that happens at the end of the Middle Ages and, it's, and it, that's very important to all of this. And it's the rise of what we call humanism. Humanism is, I'm probably not giving you a very scholarly answer, but humanism was this belief that we need to study the languages. We need to go back to the sources. We need to, uh, the Latin phrase, I've already used Latin today in the, during the service, ad fontes, to the sources. 
They, they were very big on let's stop doing the secondary work and the secondary translations. Let's stop dealing in the Latin. Let's go back to the original languages. Let's learn the Greek. Let's learn the Hebrew. So in 1506, now who remembers what's the year that Luther nails the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg church door? 1517, right? 1517. So here's what happens uh, 11 years before that. Johannes Reuchlin writes a Hebrew grammar and lexicon that opens up the Hebrew language to ministers in Europe. Until then, you had to go to, you had to travel somewhere and learn specifically under Hebrew scholars to learn the languages, but the universities of Europe are not doing that. And so when Reuchlin releases this Hebrew grammar, it changes the game. And just think about how 11 years before the Reformation happens, Reuchlin is publishing that Hebrew grammar. And if you've ever studied a language like Hebrew, it can just feel like work. It doesn't feel super spiritual to study Hebrew or to learn a language. It just feels like labor. Now, some some of you maybe love languages. I do not love languages. It just feels like math to me. It just feels like work. And you can imagine Reuchlin slaving away, working, working, uh, writing this grammar and thinking, well, somebody hopefully will appreciate this. Um, and it, it ends up changing the world. Um, the, by the way, the reformers generally knew their Greek much better than their Hebrew. Um, but some of them knew their Hebrew really well. Um, the Reformation produced its own school of preaching. So you have Luther and Zwingli. They were both inspired by John Chrysostom. You guys remember John Chrysostom? I tried to really lift Chrysostom up in your minds. And um, uh, they quoted him voluminously. Um, In Augustine, the reformers found an early systematic theologian in whom they had a kindred spirit on the subject of sovereign grace, right? They could go to Augustine and see the sinfulness of the human heart and the greatness of God's sovereign grace and his ability to change the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And they found all of that in in Augustine and they loved it. They were Augustinians. Luther was an Augustinian monk. But when they went to John Chrysostom, they found their favorite link to the early church while at the same time turning away from the sort of allegorical preaching that became so common in the Middle Ages. When they went to, to Chrysostom, they found their escape. Finally, we can stop trying to twist this passage to say something interesting. And we can instead ask the question, what does this passage mean? What did Paul mean when he wrote this? What did Matthew mean when he wrote this? What did Peter mean when he wrote this? And you could, they could start asking these questions And because they now have the ability to read the languages like Chrysostom, because they have the ability to go back to to those early days, in a sense, linguistically, they start asking the question again, what does this actually mean? And so you have, we remember I called this the grammatical historical interpretation of scripture. Um, That's what they're getting back to. And that's something that characterizes reformed preaching. You stop seeing these allegorical readings of scripture all over the place. With a few exceptions, like the Song of Songs. Um, in the Reformed churches, also consecutive expository preaching becomes the norm, where they are just preaching straight through books like we do, like we do here. Um, so let's talk about Martin Luther. Let's talk about Luther's preaching. I, again, you have so many preachers that you could draw, that you could just look to, that you could just throw a rock and find somebody to talk about. 
But I'm, I'm just picking Luther and Calvin because they're the most popular. They're the ones that we should know a thing or two about. So let's talk about Luther. By the way, what I'm about to say is highly curbed from Hughes Oliphant Old. Like when I say curbed, I mean stole. So I will never be printing this as a book later or something like that. Um, but it, I think it would be negligent if we didn't talk about Luther. Luther studied languages of Latin. He studied Greek. He studied Hebrew. He studied at the University of Erfurt. He learned his Hebrew from, guess what? Johannes Reuchlin's Hebrew grammar. Uh, he said that he was much more confident in his Greek than he was in his Hebrew. Um, you should know this too. Luther was very well trained in academic disciplines. He was as well trained as anybody in all of Christendom. If you, if you, he was able to stand toe to toe with the greatest minds of the, of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, he was able to stand toe to toe with them and not look like an idiot. Um, and they had great minds that totally could have just made him look as foolish as possible. Um, Luther's known for being brash, and sometimes we mistake brashness for stupidity, right? We see somebody brash, we go, well, there's a guy that doesn't know not to run in head first. And Luther is brash, and he is not stupid. Uh, Luther is brash um, and probably has a lot of pride behind those things, but also he has a great love of the gospel that's motivating and driving him. Um, he was part of one of the strictest monastic sects in the area, the Augustinian order in Erfurt. He was a student of Augustine. He loved Augustine. He quoted Augustine a great deal. Um, he quotes Augustine tons in his book, Bondage of the Will. If you ever read Luther's Bondage of the Will, uh, you find that he believes all he is doing is repeating Augustine and teaching it back to the Roman Catholics and to the Protestants and saying, just, just go back and learn Augustine again. Uh, before his conversion, what was he doing? He was a lecturer on biblical studies at the University of Wittenberg. Um, during this time, what is he doing? He is studying deeply the gospel or the books of Galatians, of Romans, of Hebrews in the original languages. He knows his Greek well at this point. And these books end up being key to his own conversion. So he's got the academic disciplines. He's got the credentials. But the other thing about Luther is he has a heart that is very passionate about God and theology. Now, when I say passionate, you might think healthy. But passion has its own way of being both healthy and unhealthy, right? Um, passion is like a fire that can burn out in every direction. And it can singe just as well as it can be useful. Um, and so that is something that characterizes Luther as well. He is very passionate about God, but that means he's also terrorized by the thought of God. He's terrorized by the, the thought of the judgment of God, and it drives him both toward God and away from God. But this is why Romans and Galatians become so key in Luther's conversion, because in the gospel, he finds the very thing that assuages his fear of God. So now his passion for God is now tempered by a lack of fear. He's not afraid of God because of Christ. And that's what makes the gospel so important to him. So this is a theme that you see constantly in his preaching, this idea of freedom from fear, freedom from fear, freedom from bondage. This is a, this is a heavy theme in the, in the sermons of Luther. Um, Luther's sermons were recorded. They were recorded by stenographers. Uh, because Luther was such a big deal, uh, he does have a stenographer. Now, I don't have a stenographer, uh, but if, if, uh, if, if, if my sermons were so important that we had a stenographer here, well, there would probably be a reason for it. The reason why 
all of Luther's sermons are being stenographed is because everybody is hanging by every word of the man because he's the most famous person in the whole entire world, except maybe the Pope. However, he wasn't a great orator, right? If you went back and you asked the question, what does good oratory sound like? You would not point to Luther. He was not a cultured man like the great preachers that came before him. He did not hold a candle to somebody like John Chrysostom or Augustine. But he was a popular preacher and he spoke the language of the people. And those are the things that are end up being really important. That he actually knows his audience and talks to them. So I want to focus on one of his sermons. He has a sermon uh, that he preached. And in fact, if you've got a Bible, you could turn there too, just if you're interested in following along. It's John chapter 20 um, that we're going to look at. But before we look at the sermon, I want to set the stage for the sermon. I want to talk about the occasion upon which this sermon is preached because he's preaching it in April of 1521. So just think in your timeline, this is four years after he's nailed up the 95 Theses, and he is going on his way to the Council of Worms. He's on his way to basically face the Roman Catholic Church and to basically defend his views. That's what's happening here. So four years after the nailing of the 95 Theses, he's on his way to what could be his death. Um, could, and there are all these questions hanging over the, the church at the time as he's on his way, Right. Can the church be rescued? Can the church be nudged toward recognizing that justification by by grace through faith apart from works was the teaching of scripture? Um, Was Luther just another heretic? Had the German people been swindled by Rome's practices of indulgences? These are all these open questions that are in the air at the time that he preaches this sermon. And so here's what happens. He's on his way to the, to the Council of Worms, and each city he passes through, the people are coming out and they are celebrating him as a hero. They're cheering his name as he rides from one town to the next. So the sermon that he preaches here from John chapter 20 could be described as a prophetic sermon. In what sense is the sermon prophetic? A prophetic sermon is, at least for Luther, is one where he sees himself speaking with the accusation of a prophet. Um, Think of a prophetic word as a creative word at a critical time. Something that's out of the norm, uh, but something that is very needed in a specific moment. Um, He assails the abuses of the Church of Rome in this sermon, something that was very common for his sermons. If you read a Luther sermon, you know there's going to be a jab at Rome somewhere in the sermon, probably. Um, You just know it's going to happen. Sometimes it's dominant, sometimes not so much. Um, And when you consider what a powerful institution Rome was, both religiously and politically, he tended to really pour on the heat, especially in this sermon, especially in this sermon. He's very countercultural because you're probably talking to a room full of people, some of whom are going to be on your side, some of whom are not probably going to be on your side. So he goes to Erfurt where he studied. And that's where the sermon is preached. So remember, he was a student at Erfurt. Now he's passing back through the school where he taught before. He stays at the Augustinian cloister, and while staying, it was insisted that he preach in the chapel, prepared or not. So whether you're prepared or not, Luther, we want you to speak in the chapel. So Luther's text is John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. And Luther gets up and he reads the text, and the text is the story of Jesus appearing in the upper room on the evening of the resurrection. 
Um, by the way, Luther was not given a choice on the text. They assigned it to him. They said, here's what you're going to preach on. And Luther, just a great expositor of scripture, uh, somebody who knew his Bible very well by this point, uh, stands up and he says, all right, I've got a three-point sermon for you. He's doing the medieval style, right? That's We already talked about this. The medievals sort of perfected the art of preaching in a way, and they said, do the three-point sermon. So his three points are these from verses 19, 20, and 21. So verse 19, point number one, peace be with you. Point number two, verse 20, behold my hands inside. Then point three from verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. So he takes the words of Jesus and he makes a three-point sermon out of them. The main point of the sermon is genuine Christian piety consists of two kinds of works, those we do for others and those we do for ourselves. So he's going to talk about what does it mean to really be a godly person. So I'm just going to just give you an idea of what he does with each of these points. So point number one, peace be with you. Point number one, peace be with you. He says works of Christian love and charity are important and they're fundamental to being a Christian. The problem is religious works, says Luther. He says religious works are a problem because they are not directed to God. They are directed at whom? Ourselves. He says a religious work is you doing something for your own benefit. It's something that's directed to you. You are the end of the good which you're doing. And so he says the things we do in hope of benefiting our own souls are works done toward us. And he gives examples. He says building chapels to merit God's love. Making a pilgrimage to St. Peter's in Rome hoping to find peace. Something he had done, right? (laughs) He's drawing from his own experience. Prolong fasts and prayers with which we hope to impress God. Again, he's talking from his own experience. These are things he did. And he's saying these works do not represent a changed heart and they do not bring peace with God. He says these things can't destroy sin. He says they can bring us no peace with God. And so what is he doing in the first point? He's not just saying what peace with God is. He's saying what peace with God isn't. He's letting you think about what real peace is. And then he's showing you that the church of Rome is offering this to you and you will not find it there. So he's got a polemical edge, right? A polemical is like when you're arguing with somebody and he is trying to argue people away from Rome. He's traveling across Germany and every time he gets a chance, he stops and he says, don't listen to those people. Don't listen. Listen to God's word. Don't listen to them. So that's his first point. He wants to warn us where we won't find peace with God. It's not in any works that we can do. Second point of the sermon is behold my hands inside. So here he is in the upper room. He says, behold my hands inside. So Luther says this. He says, on the other hand, you can't find peace with looking towards yourself. You can't find peace by focusing on yourself. But he says, God has chosen a man, the Lord Jesus, to crush death and destroy sin and shatter hell. So if you want to know, if you want to know how to find peace, he's saying it's you find it in the person of Jesus. That's why Jesus says, behold my hands inside. So we find salvation not by looking in more at ourselves, by staring more at ourselves, by thinking more about ourselves, thinking more about the quality of our faith, thinking about the strength of our faith, thinking about the weakness of our faith, right? So easy to do that, to focus on what I'm not, what's wrong with me. And he says, if we do that, we keep looking and we keep finding problems. We won't find peace there. 
And so what do you do? He says, behold Jesus' hands and side. Behold Jesus. And Luther gives an illustration of, of how to do this in, in Romans 5. He, he goes to Romans 5 and he points out that Christ's death releases us from sin. Uh, the works of man, the works of Adam, the works of religion can't release us from sin. And then here's what Luther says. This is a quote from him. He says, but I say that none of the saints, no matter how holy they were, attained salvation by their works. Even the holy mother of God did not become good, was not saved by her virginity or her motherhood, but rather by the will of faith and the works of God and not by her purity or her own works. So you can imagine in that environment there, they are very used to having this reverence for Mary, how he's probably stepping on toes there. He's probably rankling people at this point. Because again, like you might be persuaded on justification by faith alone, but don't talk about Mary, right? <laughs> but he's, he's doing it, right? He's going there. He says, uh, Romans 5 tells us we're free from sin by what Christ did, not by what we do. And this is a massive contrast to what the teachers of the Roman church were telling us, right? They would say, they would say Jesus is redeemer. They would say, you need Jesus. The, Romans would, the Roman Catholic Church would say, you need the death of Christ. You need uh, the, the, the death of the Lord. But that is not sufficient. Instead, we must take something to make it effectual, right? We, we need to make some kind of contribution, something that we add to the equation, that we add to the mix, so that now we can have salvation. And so in this second point, what Luther does is he's building off the first point. He's saying, we need peace with God. That's the first point. But then he says, we must find it in the right place. And we only find it by beholding Jesus crucified. Um, I think so far, excellent sermon. Not my sermon, it's Luther's sermon. So then point three, as the father has sent me, even so I send you. Um, so he transitions by the, his transitions, by the way, are not, they're not easy to, to notice, actually. If you read the sermon, if you read this sermon from Luther, um, you don't, you know how I announce when I'm starting another point and I make it really plain? Luther doesn't do that. Um, Luther says his points up front. He says up front, here are my three points. But he doesn't announce that it's time for the third point, right? He, he just sort of has this meandering style and if you didn't know any better, you would think that he just got up and started talking. And then he was finished when it was time. But actually, he's following the outline, but he is not artificially bound. He doesn't make the statements of the points and then say what he's going to do in the points the way that I do. Um, when I first started preaching, I went into the chapel at the school and I did one of my practice sermons. And I wanted to do that. I actually wanted to have this preaching style where it sounds so natural that you just you just sound like you're talking through the text you just sound like you're you're walking through the text and and you don't even notice all the points they're all there but you don't notice them that was what i wanted for myself and what i noticed was as a listener you have little bits of patience i guess this might be just me being a realist or something you have patience in small bursts as a listener and so i'm like this right if i hear someone talking for too long then I can check out. So what happens with the points is you give a point and you give someone a chance to start over again in the middle of the sermon a few times. 
So maybe I didn't follow that point, but I can try again with this one, right? And I can try again over here. And so you're really only asking for maybe like seven or eight minutes from somebody. And then you're asking for another seven or eight minutes and then another seven or eight minutes. And um, it gives, but if you have a sermon that feels like one long point, if you get lost at one point, you kind of can give up. So this is, just, this is just me going, I'm preaching to people who have attention span problems. I have attention span problems. This is one of the ways I fight against that. So for me, the point outline is, a, is an attention problem. I don't know if Luther has to reckon with those same problems, but you know what? I do not judge Luther for his three points that you can't spot as you're going through them. But, but the structure is not as clear as you're going through it. So point three of his sermon is, as the Father has sent me, even so, I send you. And so Luther leads off with this point by complaining that those who preach today do a poor job of preaching. Um, that's a hard thing to say in a university town where a lot of the preachers probably came from this school. Right? Like, it's like, it's like it would be like if I went back to RTS or something and said, all of the preachers in this land are terrible. And they're all like, we're right here. You know? <laughs> That's kind of what he does. He goes to Erford and he's like, the preaching in this land is bad. Um, they do a poor job of preaching. And here's what he says. He says there's, there's usually superficial preaching of the gospel followed up by some sort of moral lesson and illustration from the life of a saint. He says that's what you guys are always doing. Like the preaching is always, here's the thing. You should be a good person. Here's a saint who was good. Why can't you be more like that saint? And, and he says, you are stripping people of their life when you do that. You don't realize it. You think that you're holding up good examples before people. But if you hold up a good example and you don't set forth Christ for the person, then all you're doing is putting a new burden upon their neck and you're just weighing them down. Um, he says, those who have been sent are not living up to their calling. Um, really strong words. I mean... He, he preaches like someone who knows he's, who thinks he might, might be about to die. And you know what? If I'm going to die, I want to leave you guys with something that you might not like me very much, but maybe you'll remember it afterwards, right? See, the problem with preaching in his day was it was aiming to teach people to do good works, but doesn't aim at explaining the gospel. And that's what Luther's getting. By the way, he's getting specific. He doesn't just complain about the church in general, but he says specifically, here's something that I see that needs to be dealt with. Um, oftentimes preaching doesn't get very specific. It gets really general. Why? Because when you get specific, you step on toes. When you get specific, you hurt people's feelings. Uh, when you get specific, you make enemies. And so it's better to just kind of speak vaguely and generally and <laughs> with cliches, you know. And Luther doesn't do that. See, he, instead he looks at Jesus' words to Peter in John 21. He says, Simon, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And then Luther doesn't pull any punches. He quotes from, from Luther, or he, he says this. Indeed, the clergy of our day feed the sheep in their pastures as butchers do before the slaughter. He points to this complaint at the Pope. He says, the Pope is like this, which that's a, that's a Luther. You got to have a Pope reference somewhere in there too. <laughs> but, he, but he also points the finger at his fellow monks. Here's what he says. Instead of preaching out in the world as true ministers of Christ, they stay in their cloisters and pray the canonical hours and say the mass. They don't go out into the world. They just stay in and they have a very closed up life and they keep the gospel to themselves. 
And so Luther has a conclusion. He exhorts his hearers. He says, put your faith in Jesus for your salvation so that you can have real peace with God. What a straightforward sermon. Um, How's that sermon received? So one professor who was present said this. He said, by the power of his mouth, hearts were melted like snow by the breath of spring as he showed the way of heaven's goods, which had been closed for centuries. Um, that sermon was printed and reprinted seven times in the same year. So, you know, somebody's like, I'm writing this down. And Luther's like, well, I'm off to die. Do whatever you want with that sermon. See you later. <laughs> um, one important thing that Hughes Old mentions about prophetic preaching is timing. He talks about the timing of when a, such a sermon is preached. He says, in some ways, the, this kind of sermon is just a sermon, right? He's just opening John 20. And telling you what John 20 says. And that's what most sermons are, right? Most sermons are just, well, here we are this week. We're in Matthew chapter 12, right? And we're going to open it up. And we're going to see what it says. But the preaching that Luther engaged in is basically straightforward, ordinary exposition of Scripture. The kind of, of exposition that he learned from John Chrysostom. In a lot of ways that he learned from Augustine. But here's the thing. Given the time that he preached it. Um, given his time, he preached prophetically more than is probably normal in today's churches. Um, probably, you know, some preachers like to preach prophetically and think that they're really uh, bringing the heat. Um, but the timing and the work of the spirit are also important in prophetic preaching. And so, you know, a pastor who is always taking his church out to the woodshed might think that he's preaching prophetically. What he's really doing is just bruising the sheep. Um, and you have to know the difference. And, and that's not what a minister's job is, is just to hurt the sheep and strike the sheep and, and um, be harsh on the sheep. Um, but that's what prophetic preaching is. It's the words given at just the right time when they're needed and blessed by the Holy Spirit. We have like five minutes. Does anyone have questions about Luther's preaching or other things that, that any of this brings up before we talk about Calvin's preaching? Because we won't get to it this week. Yeah, Eric. So you can buy whole volumes of Luther's sermons. Um, at one point, I sold it before I moved here. Uh, I had a set about this big. It was just a big, a set of 10 big red books. And it was just collections of Luther's sermons. Um, so you, you can just go and look for them. The, they do the same thing with Calvin, where they'll just put collections of his sermons into volumes. So I, don't, I wish I had a specific one that I could recommend. Um, I have in Lagos, I have a lot of Luther sermons that I can read. Yeah, Sasha. Uh, was the greatness of his preaching most to do the fact that it was revolutionary, that nobody else spoke like him? Uh, or... Well, partly the thing. Part... What are you going to prove of, you know, yeah. contemporary good preachers in the United States would be, would be stand out? It's a good question. I don't know. Sometimes I think it's really important to be the first, first, uh, first one at the at the starting line, you know. <laughs> and Luther, in many ways, is he's he's the premier preacher in the vernacular, right? Because remember, you had Jan Hus and you had Wycliffe, and they were interested in making sure the word of God was in normal people's hands. But Luther is really the one who sticks his neck out and does this thing that is not common yet. 
Um, you know, sometimes it takes one person, the courage of one person to, to do the right thing and others become empowered to do the same thing. And that's what it seems like with Luther because I don't think, I don't think in 1517 you have others preaching quite like he is. You have others who are coming around on the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but it's just a thing about timing. I, I don't know that Luther would, would stand out. I think Luther would just be another expositor of scripture, hopefully, um, in our own day. But maybe I just need to read more Luther sermons. Yeah, Benjamin. Would perhaps the fact of his experience in life have contributed greatly to his sermons? Mm. I mean, what he went through, his struggles uh, of sin and confession, confession over and over and over again, not getting satisfaction until he was finally, the Lord opened up his eyes uh, to Romans, mm-hmm. plus his trip to Rome, where he experienced firsthand what it is to be pietistic, um, and and therefore not really focusing on the Lord. That's perhaps plus the other many things that, that happened in his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Luther. So, and then the, this is also the thing that the, the th- same thing that strikes you strikes me about Luther is the thing that strikes me about Paul, because Paul basically follows the system that he is handed to its conclusion, and when he gets to the destination. He doesn't find life there. That's, that's the way Paul is, right? Pa- Paul says this later on in Philippians. Like, I did all the things I was supposed to do. I get there. And what do I have? I have a heap of junk. And then Luther does the same thing. He goes through all of the... And you would think that by now, New Testament Christian church would, would have some solution that's, the same, that's different. And yet he seems to come back with the same problem that Pharisee Saul comes back with, which is still, where is the life in this? I follow it. I follow it all the way, and I've got nothing. So that's one of the things that just strikes me is that they both speak from experience, and partly that ends up being part of their the strength of their testimonies and Luther's. And the, and the trials he went through, the sufferings he went through, being persecuted and being hunted down and mm-hmm. killed—you know, those things really impact your life. And then when you are able to transfer that in in, in a form that through God's word, very impacting. Well, if the Pope tries to kill you, he might come up a time or two in your sermons. That's all I'm saying. Um, Eric, you had your hand up. I was just going to ask, can you, can you kind of explain how Luther and the humanists, like Erasmus and other, you know, um, was, was Luther really impacted by the humanists at the time? Was there an impact going in this direction? Or kind of what's the relationship there between those kind of he is a Christian and a humanist. So I'm not going to venture a full answer except to say that Luther is benefiting from what the humanists are doing. So he's benefiting from, I be, if, if I'm not mistaken, Luther uses Erasmus's New Testament to do his own translation for the German people. And so he's benefiting from the work of humanism, but humanism precedes the Reformation a little bit. But they are surprisingly coinciding with one another and the the reformation ends up feeding a great deal off of it and i think probably humanism ends up feeding a lot off of the reformation because what does the reformation do in a sense for good and for ill it ends up sending the message that you should think for yourselves and once you once you embrace that message you don't you don't always understand all the ways it's going to spin off for, for again for good and for bad so 
As for how much they interact with each other, that's probably for a scholar that knows more about these things than I do. I mean, Luther and Erasmus had correspondence, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the book Bondage of the Will is him basically trying to tell Erasmus that he's an idiot. And he probably says worse things than that in the book. So. <laughs> yeah, Jim. The preaching in Heidelberg, would that have been Latin? You mean before Luther? Luther would have been preaching in German. Yeah, so finally they're understanding the word of God. That's one of the special things. Have you, how many, raise your hand if you've seen the Luther movie, the, the newer one. Like the one that I think it was a Joseph Fiennes was in. So I love that Luther movie. I'm not saying that everything in it is great. Yeah, it's really good. Everybody should see it. All right. We have a Jesus endorsement of, of the Luther movie. But I saw it in theaters. I was excited to see it. I wanted to see a well-done Luther movie. And I remember my wife still makes fun of me. Like, I pretty... Yeah, so I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure... I, I remember crying when Amos was born. And I remember just being nervous when all the others were born. Um, and I don't... I do, I, and I definitely, definitely cried at the birth of the, New Test, the, the German New Testament in, uh, in the Luther movie. <laughs> I don't cry when I preach. I don't cry when my children are born. Uh, but I, I cried. So Luther, like, he brings out the, the New Testament and he's translated it into German. And he's handing it, I believe it's to the prince, uh, Frederick. And he's handing it to, to Frederick and he pulls the, I think he's got a cover or maybe he just hands it over. But he hands it over and I did cry. So I've got a soft heart in some places. You just take special digging to find out where it is. So. Anyway, Luther would be really, really good. Um, but here's what I'm looking forward to next week. Next week, we're going to talk about Calvin's preaching. You don't think of Calvin as a preacher. We think of him as a systematician. I brought out a few exhibits, and I didn't get to Calvin. So that's all right. You know, we got to swim a little bit deeper with Luther on that sermon. Hopefully, you found some benefit in that. Um, reading old sermons is a blessing. Um, there's something about, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about chronological snobbery, how we always think, oh, the newest must be best. We can also make the mistake of thinking the older is better. Um, I think that it is a wise thing to listen to preaching that is older than your own time period. There's something beautiful about reading a, a Chrysostom sermon and hearing him see the same point in the text that, that a preacher today would see. There's something beautiful about doing the same thing with the Reformation. So I, I love it and I do commend it to you. So I'm going to pray for us. And I know we stayed an extra five minutes. So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for raising up servants in each time when they're needed. We pray that you would we pray that you would make us willing to speak your truth wherever we find ourselves. Um, we pray that you would be in the process even now of raising up preachers for your church. If we believe that preaching is the lifeblood of the church, if we believe that it's the heartbeat of the church, then Lord, there is there's probably nothing we could pray for more important for the future of your church than to ask you to be raising up preachers, raising up pastors, raising up people to bring the word in season and out of season to your people in the times when they are, they're not willing to hear it, that there would be someone there to still speak it. That in the times when people are hungry for it, Lord, that there would be someone to serve them. We pray that you would do that for us, that you'd do this for the future of your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.